to speak to you about William Carey today, especially considering that so many of you are also students of William Carey, and find him as inspiring and motivating as I do. I want to speak to you about William Carey and the subject of missionary motivation. You're all familiar with the story how he rose from being an impoverished uh, shoemaker to become the father of modern missions. When you begin to study the literature, uh, there are certain historians out there that uh, will cast uh, a certain amount of doubt on the, the idea that he is actually the father of modern missions. And I won't defend that here, but I will say that I think he actually uh, deserves a, a greater role. He needs to be elevated even above father of modern missions. Uh, the Indian scholar S.D. Alagadi, I think, uh, says it very well. He says, in the modern history of Christianity, two great men of God, and Martin Luther and William Carey, have played a very significant role in the ushering in two different eras in the history of the Christian church. And I think that gets it exactly right. Now, Martin Luther, his life marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The life of William Carey marks the point at which the Reformation overflowed its banks, went beyond Europe, and spread to the wider world. So we ask ourselves, after looking at his life and all that was accomplished through his life, all that God did through him, uh, what was the driving force? What motivated him? Yesterday, I don't know who it was exactly, but someone was, I guess it was actually the first day of the conference, and uh, introducing the idea of church planning, someone said something to the effect that church planning is putting legs to our theology, and I really liked that. I think that's exactly it. We find in Carey the supreme example of theology that is transmitted into active obedience. When we look at his entire ministry, it is theology lived out. We go to the very beginning, his uh, famous sermon in Nottingham in May of 1792. It's called the Deathless Sermon. It's the sermon where he gave us the watchword, expect great things, attempt great things. And that is it. It's theology translated into action. Theology translated into obedience. When he preached that sermon, he spoke <coughs> from Isaiah chapter 54. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thy habitations, Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. That's action. That's obedience. And it's based on expectation, holy expectation. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. When we take the promises of God seriously, when we believe that our God truly is sovereign, then we get up and we act on it. And if he's given us a command, then we obey the command. John Clark Marshman, referring to that day, John Clark Marshman was the son of Joshua Marshman, one of the three uh, major players there in Serampore. He, he wrote about that day. It says, when they came to deliberate, the old feelings of doubt and hesitation predominated. And they were about to separate without any decisive result. Till Carey was in an agony of distress. Samuel Pierce Carey, in his biography, picks up the story, and he says, as they were about to dismiss, and you've heard this, he says that Carey grabbed Fuller's arm, Andrew Fuller, who was leading the meeting. He grabbed his arm, and he said, is there nothing again going to be done? 
sir. And that's when the tide turned and someone made the motion that they form the particular Baptist Missionary Society. I don't know what it was with Carrie exactly. Somehow, there were no filters between his mind and his heart and his feet. His convictions were translated into immediate action. So I want to explore this idea of Carrie's motivation this morning. When you study the issue of evangelistic motivation, uh, you generally run into Michael Green's work on evangelism in the early church. And he kind of sets a paradigm for the discussion. And he sets out that, he states that there's three basic, in the early church, there were three basic motivations. The first one was theological. Gratitude for God's overwhelming love. He says this, in a word, Christian evangelism has its motivation rooted in what God is and what he has done for man through the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus. So a theological motivation. We could compare this to John Piper who says that the reason we do missions is because uh, there's not enough worship. If If there was enough worship, we wouldn't have to do missions. A second motivation is compassion, feelings of compassion for our fellow men. And a third motivation is that of obedience. We can find these reflected in Carrie's own motivation. First of all, there's a concern for God's glory. Second, there's concern for his fellow men. And finally, and this is the biggest one with Carrie, the simple idea of doing one's duty. When we look at Carrie's writings, we see the idea of God's glory in numerous places. Um, for example, in the introduction to the inquiry, he states that missionary endeavor, endeavor is the proper response to the Lord's command that his disciples, and this is Carrie's words right here, uh, pray that his kingdom may come and his will be done as it is in heaven. In other words, if we pray, then what that should lead us to is actually working that out. We should pray that his kingdom may come and that his will may be done on earth. We're concerned about the growth of his kingdom, the expansion of his glory. Before ever going to India, in a letter to his sister Mary, he wrote, My heart is set upon the undertaking. I much desired to take Felix. Felix was his son. Uh, I much desired to take Felix with me, but it seems God will strip me of all earthly comforts. I find satisfaction, however, in reflecting that I am prompted by a sense of duty and a desire to God's glory and that I am in his hands. I have never wavered about the duty itself, but I feel much leaving my family and people. Many years later, he wrote to a friend, John Williams, and he described the resistance they met as they went about evangelizing, especially from the Brahmins. He wrote this, he says, Public disputes with them, also in the streets, and in any place where we meet with them, and always in the hearing of the common people, have in some measure excited them to reflect. But at present, it has been of no use except to make them try to avoid disputes with us and to excite a laugh against them among others who are not permitted to read for themselves. Then he says this. He says, I have no doubt, but in the end, the God of all grace will exert his almighty power and vindicate his authority and establish the glory of his own name in this wretched country. Our labors may be only like those of pioneers to prepare the way, but truth will assuredly prevail. And this, among the other kingdoms, 
of the earth shall, and thus among the other kingdoms of the earth shall assuredly see the salvation of our God. In 1821, he wrote to his son Jabez, who had gone as missionary to the Molucca Islands, and he said this, I know the difficulties of first engaging in this work are great and feel much for your standing alone in that vast held. But I am sure the Lord can give you strength according to your day and that he will sustain all who, with a single eye to his glory, engage in his glorious work. There's almost a Pauline repetition there, no? It is equally the same with him to help with many or with few and to effect his great designs by weak instruments as by those which are apparently the strongest for in truth, all are weakness itself. The greatness of the power is in him and must always appear so to be. It is therefore not unlikely that he may give us great and even greater blessing to your labors who are working alone as to the combined effort of those who appear to have every advantage. And he ends with this. He says, he is Almighty God. So he was absolutely motivated by God's glory, and the idea of God's glory sustained him in the darkest hours. At the same time, he felt deep compassion for the people of India. Again, returning to the inquiry, we see this laid out in the introduction. He appeals to feelings of humanity. In section 4, he maintains that motivations should be derived from consideration of the destitute and uncivilized state of most of mankind. He said if we look out on the world and see their condition, it should draw us to action. And then he says accounts of mankind's ignorance or cruelty should call forth our pity and excite us to concur with providence in seeking their eternal good. Carey was known for his aggressive evangelism and his aggressive apologetics. He especially took on the Brahmins, and uh, at times his method was, uh, some people feel a little over the top. William Ward was critical of how hard he went against them. He would ridicule their gods and ridicule their logic and ridicule their religion. But when asked about it, he said, I am like one finding his neighbor asleep with his house on fire. I fetch him hard thumps to warn him of danger and promote his escape. And Ward, who was somewhat critical of his aggressive apologetics, also described his demeanor in an entry in Ward's journal. We find this, Our Lord's Day evening congregation of servants is composed of Hindus, Muslims, Hindu Portuguese. Brother C. was very earnest and affectionate this evening and addressed each class according to the delusions in which they were brought up with earnest tears. So he's motivated by God's glory. He's also motivated by feelings of compassion. But I don't think that is the main line of motivation in Carrie. Those stand behind the main line. They certainly play a major role. But he is especially concerned about the issue of obedience and following through with the duty which God has given us. It's the main argument, main line of argument in the inquiry. In the inquiry, he speaks of obligation, 
He speaks of obedience. He argues that it becomes us, it behooves us, and it is incumbent upon us. And these are phrases that are repeated. As you know, he recovered in the great in the in the inquiry, he recovered the Great Commission. Uh, many had argued that the Great Commission was only incumbent on the apostles. John Gill argues this in his commentary, and I don't want to get into the John Gill thing at all, whether or not he was hyper-Calvinist. I know there are many wonderful things in John Gill's writings, but on his, in his comment on Matthew chapter 28, he says this was only incumbent on the apostles. Of course, Calvin argued the same thing, and we understand that it's coming from a different historical context. And Calvin, by his example, showed that he had a missionary heart. But many people took these arguments and saw them as an argument against being involved in missions. You know the story about how when you know, one day when, as a young pastor, Kerry uh, suggested that in the, past, in the pastor's meeting to discuss the issue of missions, John Ryland Sr. supposedly stood up and said, young man, if God is going to he- uh, save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Well, his son, John Ryland Jr., later Uh, said that that is not really exactly what his father said, and there's a debate about whether he actually said that. But it did reflect the attitude of many Baptists of his period. And in the inquiry, William Carey addresses these issues, and he brings three arguments to bear. First of all, he says, in the Great Commission, uh, we find that we're supposed to baptize people. We still baptize people. Is this still incumbent upon us? If that's incumbent upon us, why are we not discipling the nations. Then he talks about all the former ministers of the gospel who have continued to obey the command. Were they in error? Did they make a mistake in carrying the gospel uh, to further places? And then the last argument returns to the actual text of the Great Commission, and he says the very last line of the Great Commission is a promise of his divine presence, and that promise is until the end of the age. Is that not relevant? And he says, of course... It is. We return to the letter he wrote to his sister Mary before going to the field, and we read it again with slightly different emphasis, looking at this idea of duty. He says, My heart is set upon the undertaking. I much desire to take Felix with me, but it seems God will strip me of all earthly comforts. I find satisfaction, however, in reflecting that I am prompted by a sense of duty. And a desire to God's glory, they're both there. And that I am in His hands. I have never wavered about the duty itself, but I feel much leaving my family and my people. Why was duty such an important part of his missiological thinking? So much a part of that which motivated him. I think in part it comes from the theological development that had occurred among particular Baptists, we have to understand that uh, the kind of popular idea of Carey being the only one interested in these sort of things is not really true. He did not come out of a vacuum. God had been doing a work among particular Baptists for a number of years. They had been struggling against the effects of hyper-Calvinism. There's a famous... A quote by Andrew Fuller who said that had things gone on for much longer, Baptists would have become a perfect dunghill in society. And Andrew Fuller and others set about to reverse that situation. Andrew Fuller, Robert Hall, 
Under the influence of Jonathan Edwards, they found important answers as they struggled with their theology. And they came up with a couple of ideas. Uh, One of the ideas was the idea of duty faith. Uh, Before them, people had taught that those who were not among the elect, because they were not among the elect, had no duty to believe. This, of course, they saw as a mistake. Uh, They'd also um, come back to the idea of the free offer offer of the gospel. Hyper-Calvinists, of course, had taught that to offer the gospel openly to all was to interfere in God's purposes. Both of those ideas, you can see, are related to the idea of duty. The unbeliever has a duty to believe. He has a duty to obey the call. The minister also has a duty to preach, to offer the gospel. Andrew Fuller, when he took the pastorate at Kettering, wrote the congregation a letter and said that unless he was able, allowed to preach, he would not come. That he insisted on giving an offer of the gospel to everyone. And that if he did not, he felt that he would have the blood of men on his hands. There was also renewed biblicism. This movement away from hyper-Calvinism was a movement away from an overly rationalistic approach to theology and a return to a biblical approach. Andrew Fuller was especially impressed by all the examples of apostolic preaching in the New Testament. He felt that they were being taught that they should not offer the gospel, but as he read the book of Acts, he saw that over and over the gospel was offered. And so the sheer weight of biblical example overcame the rationalism of hyper-Calvinism. We have to understand, I think, Carey's missiology as an extension of fullerism. The recovery of, a great, of the Great Commission was a return to biblicism. And it's the logical next step in full Andrew Fuller's theology. It's a simple idea. If we are called to offer the gospel to Englishmen, why shouldn't we offer the gospel to all of the world? So he finds in this growth of theology, in this theological movement, he finds considerable motivation. It brings him down to the idea of duty. He's motivated by God's glory. He's motivated by compassion. But both, excuse me, both of those ideas, unless they at some point focus on an actual command, have a tendency to remain diffuse. We can talk about God's glory, and we can worship God. We can have compassion for our fellow man. But to turn those into action, what is required is a specific command. We need biblical revelation. We need marching orders from the Lord. And that's what we have in the Great Commission. And the Great Commission demands a response. The Great Commission demands obedience. It lays out what our duty is. And so compassion and God's glory stand behind the idea of obedience, the idea of duty. In the inquiry, we see this focus in the very title. The title is a long one. You've read it before. An inquiry into the obligations, the idea of duty, into the obligations of Christians to use means, the idea of taking practical steps, an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. Carey takes two additional steps 
The first step is to bring to bear the doctrine of providence on his missiological thinking. The second step is to elaborate on the use of means. Speaking about the role of providence, he wrote, It has been said, We ought not to force our way, but to wait for openings and leadings of providence. But it might, with the equal propriety, be answered in this case, neither ought we to neglect embracing those openings which daily present themselves to us. What openings of providence do we wait for? We can neither expect to be transported into the heathen world without ordinary means, nor to be endowed with the gift of tongues, etc., when we arrive there. These would not be providential interpositions, but miraculous ones. And I think the heart of it is right here. He says, where a command exists, nothing can be necessary to render it binding, but a removal of those obstacles which render obedience impossible. And these are removed already. We could sum it up like this. If we have a command and we have the means to obey that command, then we must obey without delay. Carey said, you see men going to the farthest reaches of the earth in pursuit of profit. They can get there. They take a ship. We can do the same thing. Where the means exist, and the command exists, there's no time left for debate. We must obey. So the rule of providence becomes an important element in his missiological thinking. Just a side note, it's important because it gives to his missiological thinking a contemporary focus. He believed that God was active in his day. And he believed as he looked around him, he could see God's hand. He believed, he believed in, <clears throat> that he believed that God was making available the means by which to fulfill the command. Now, he was, he was subscribed to the London Confession. He was thoroughly Baptist in his ecclesiology. But his was not an antiquarian approach. And when he arrived in India, he did not build Baptist museums, but rather he built living, vital Indian Baptist churches. Because God was active, he was attuned to his times, and he reached out and grasped the means that were available to him through God's providence. And that's the second step. The idea of the use of means. And this doctrine, his idea of the use of means, is thoroughly in line with Calvin's treatment of the same subject. In the inquiry, he wrote, when he laid down his life and taken it up again, he sent forth his disciples to preach the good tidings to every creature and to endeavor by all possible means to bring over a lost world to God. He also said, quoting Solomon, 
He that winneth souls is wise, implying no doubt that the work of gaining over men to the sight of God was to be done by winning methods and that it required the greatest wisdom to do it with success. Upon these points, we think it right to fix our serious and abiding attention. The last quote is from the Serampore Compact or the Form of Agreement, the uh, um, agreement that the missionaries, the Serampore Trio, had for how they were to carry out the ministry once they established themselves in Serampore. So they look for specific, specific means for carrying out the task. Uh, you're probably well familiar with his uh, use of technology. Um, I've always been fascinated by the fact that they introduced probably, it was probably the first steam engine to, to India. They did this to make paper. When you study, we, we kind of get this idea of carry working alone with a pundit, and that's what the whole enterprise consisted of. But the more you study it, you realize it was a massive project. And they brought to bear the entire industrial chain of production uh, to uh, publish Bibles in the languages of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, to publish Bibles, they had to, first of all, uh, make paper. Uh, they had paper in India, uh, but it wasn't good paper, and so they set out to make their own paper. Uh, they set up a paper mill. Uh, then someone was killed while they were running it by hand or with, high, with manual labor, so they imported the, the steam engine. Uh, they learned how to make font because most of the languages of Indian still didn't have type uh, for, for movable type available in their language. Um, so they made, they took advantage of all of the technological means that were available to them. Um, and I find this endlessly fascinating. But I think it's more important to look at the fact that they reached out and took advantage of institutional forms that were common to their time. William Carey is the father of modern mission because he solves the dilemma of missionary agency. Now, when I say that, I don't mean agencies. I mean agency in the philosophical sense, the capacity of an agent to act in the world. Kenneth Scott Latterett uh, says that the problem, one of the problems that had to be solved for Protestant missions was how to go about it. The Catholics had a leg up on us because they had ways of going about sending missionaries to other parts. Um, they always relied on the monasteries and then later on on the Catholic orders. Francis Xavier uh, went to the Far East as a Jesuit with all the backing of the Jesuit organization and the papal authority and papal finances. Well, the Protestants had to find a way of mobilizing missionary forces. And they found this <laughs> when Carey proposed to use a type of organization which was common in his day, the Voluntary Society. De Tocqueville said that in America, everything was done through voluntary societies. Of course, the Voluntary Society was a form that had been adopted from Great Britain. And Carey was familiar with it through his own uh, life. He'd been involved in the Philosophical Society, for example, in the city of Leicester. He saw how that worked. He'd been involved in... Uh, agitation for religious freedom while he was a pastor in Leicester. And so he was familiar with how these organizations work. And so he copied a type of organization which was from his own period. It was also, he was aware, that it had been used to a certain extent, uh, extent by the Anglicans, by the Church of England before them, uh, as they attempted to evangelize uh, in New England. And so he adopted a type of organization uh, which seemed to fit the bill. 
This he managed to wed, first of all, to Baptist ecclesiology. Um, He thoroughly believed in the importance of the local church. It began with the local church and it ended with the local church. They set about in India to establish independent local Baptist churches. In the midst of the Serampur controversy, he uh, defended the churches in India and said, you need to understand that these churches are as independent as any Baptist church in England and they need to be treated with the same sort of respect. So he made a stand on Baptist ecclesiology. I'm not sure de Tocqueville understood the degree to which voluntary societies may have actually been an outgrowth of Baptist or congregational forms of government. Another institution which was important was, of course, the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, the coming together of independent congregations to achieve something which by themselves they could not achieve. And Kerry laid hold of other forms of institutional organization. The Serampur Mission was organized along the lines of a Moravian mission. When they began setting up schools, they adopted what was known as the Lancaster Method or the Madras Method or the Monitorial Method of Education. And the idea was that you educated a few students, the brighter students and older students, then became tutors for the younger students, and this allowed them to propagate schools all over India. They wouldn't have been able to do it in the other, in the other way. Now, when you look at all these different uh, institutions and how they were implemented, we can see numerous problems with them. I, I wouldn't defend every decision they made or every detail. We have to understand that they're the first ones into the gap. And so they made numerous mistakes, and those mistakes later came back to haunt them in the Serampore controversy, decisions that were made early on, uh, weaknesses in the society method were exposed, and it was very damaging. I just want to point out that William Carey, under this compulsion to obey, looked around and said, what tools do we have available? And though they were not perfect, he reached out and grasped them. In their, in their missions, they had a number of guiding principles that I'd like to run through quickly. First of all, they were very clear about their purposes. In 1815, in a report to the BMS, they said that their, the main, their main um, purposes were, first of all, the establishment of stations, mission statements, stations, which from which the cross of Christ was preached. And as the cross of Christ was preached, then local congregations were established. Carey always put the greatest emphasis on the stations and the churches that grew out of them. When you read a biography, uh, generally the biographies of William Carey tend to emphasize his uh, translation work. And for obvious reasons, it was a, what he achieved uh, in translation was absolutely phenomenal. I'm not sure it has been duplicated uh, since then. But if you were to read Carey's writings, his greatest concern is not for his translations, but for the churches that were being established. The second primary purpose was <clears throat> the uh, translation of the scriptures. In many ways, they were going back. They were duplicating what was achieved in the prop- in the Protestant um, in the Protestant Reformation over the space of about 200 years by many people, the Serampore Trio tried to achieve on their own in, the la- in, in, a, in, a, in a 
space of about 30 years. Commission stations, translations, and then from there, education. Because obviously, if people are to read the Bible in their own languages, they need to know how to read. What you get is sort of a holistic picture of missions. But I think that can be deceptive. If you read their letters, if you read their reports, their primary concern is the preaching of the gospel and the establishing of local churches. There are other related issues. They were extremely practical, but they were not pragmatic. They were guided, I think, by the regulative principle of Scripture. And you see this especially in many places, but especially in how they handled the issue of caste. When someone came to Christ, as soon as they were baptized, they were required to sit and eat a meal with the rest of the church. Carey believed that caste was the greatest evil, and it must be resisted. And it was a principle which was not continued later on to great damage to the church. So they resisted the issue of caste because they did not see it as being part of a New Testament understanding of the church. At the same time, they tried to adopt appropriate forms for India, always within what they felt to be biblical norms. Uh, For example, uh, they... um, decided that they would not require the Christians to change their names. Uh, Krishna Pal was the first convert. Krishna Das was another convert. Uh, those are obviously Krishna, we understand, is uh, a reference to Hinduism. But they, by looking at the New Testament, they found a model, and they found that in the New Testament, people retained their names that had pagan roots. And so they did not require their people to change their names. Um, they... Uh, Anticipated uh, John Thomas uh, anticipated Hudson Taylor many years before John Thomas adopted native dress. Uh, the others didn't. William, Warren compla- William Ward complained of how hot it got preaching in black dress out in the street during the Indian summer. I don't know why they just didn't imitate John Thomas. Um, but he did adapt in other ways. For example, uh, William Ward became almost, he essentially became a vegetarian to not offend the Indians in the Serampore Compact. They say very specifically that the missionaries should endeavor by all possible means to not offend the sensibilities of the Indian. Uh, For example, they talk very specifically about not being uh, cruel to animals or even appear to be cruel to animals. Dr. Usserin, who wrote an important thesis on Kerry in the middle of the 20th century, uh, compared his approach to culture to that of Zinzendorf before him. Zinzendorf's approach was... His idea was that in the church, you would end up with a uniform culture. A church in India would be no different from a church in Africa and no different from a church in Europe. But Kerry did not believe that at all. According to Usserin, Kerry's approach was that the Indian culture should be redeemed and that the result would be a uniquely Indian and a uniquely Christian church. The result of this approach to culture was that there was a cultural revival, a cultural renaissance in India of historic proportions. William Carey believed in the potential of the Bengali language. He wrote the first dictionaries and the first grammars in Bengali. He was later recognized by important historical figures or cultural figures in India as the father of the Bengali language. And the Bengali language produced 
the first non-European Nobel Prize in Literature in the early 1900s in Rabindranath Tagore, who was also a friend of Gandhi. And Rabindranath Tagore recognized that the birth of Bengali as a literary language could be traced back to the work, the, the work of William Carey. Another point, I think, which is important, a guiding principle, was their approach to evangelical cooperation. I think you can find three different models. Uh, nowadays, a lot of people, when they write about Kerry, want to see him as a wide-open ecumenicist. And I don't think that's exactly true. Neither was he a Baptist sectarian. I think you could think of him in terms of a model that we could call evangelical cooperation. It's a model that came out of the Great Awakening. Uh, there's an example of it in the relations that the ministers had in Olney, the wonderful and warm relationship between John Sutcliffe and John Newton. Once on the field, Carey uh, was supported to a great degree uh, by William Wilberforce in England and also by the Anglican chaplains David Brown and Claudius Buchanan. It was an intimate relationship. Uh, John Clark Marshman writes about the relationship that his father, Joshua Marshman, had with David Brown. He says he recalls them walking by the Hewley River, arm in arm, lost in discussion. There was a warm relationship. Carey traced his theological understanding to Thomas Scott, who was curate in Olney after Newton. They worked together where they could, where there was a shared vision. They uh, helped organize and they participated for many years in the Bible Society to help in the publication of Bibles. And I could go on and on about this, but I need to hurry up. Um, the last major principle that I think is important to draw out is that they believe that all of all the different available means, the primary means, was men themselves. They needed to raise up Indian leaders. In the Sarampore Compact, they wrote of the importance of encouraging every kind of gift in the Indians that they found about them. J.C. Marshman, John Clark Marshman, uh, in the middle of the century, when he wrote the story of Sarampore, lamented the fact that after the death of his father and William Ward and William Carey, no one else had followed in their footsteps. After William Carey, there was a movement away from preparing national leaders. And he felt that it had negatively Im impacted the work in India. Uh, Eustace Carey, who I like to call Useless Carey, was William Carey's nephew. And Eustace Carey felt that to support this idea of raising up national leaders would be an impediment, would be an obstacle to bringing more European missionaries to the field. And so he was very much against it. George Smith, writing at the end of the century, wrote in the same term and lamented, the fact that basically a century of missionary endeavor had been hampered, a, missionary, uh, a century had been lost because they had departed from the original philosophy of the Sarampore Trio. So there are basically three motivations, um, the glory of God, the theological motivation, compassion, and it all comes to head, comes to a point with this idea of duty. Still, I find it a bit of a mystery. Extreme urgency. There was a parent in Carrie's ministry. 
an urgency that I wish we could feel. Before, <coughs> the month before, Kerry preached his message, that famous message. Fuller had preached at Clipstone on April 27th, April 27th, 1791. He preached a message called The Pernicious Influence of Delay in Religious Matters. He said, We pray for the conversion and salvation of the world yet neglect the ordinary means by which those ends have been used to be accomplished. Carrie is even more blunt. Later on, after he'd already been on the field, talking about strategy, he said, I need not say that circumstances must in a great measure determine where missionaries should settle. The chief town of each of these countries would be preferable if other circumstances permit. But sometimes government would not allow this and sometimes other things may close the door. We recognize that there are circumstances that shape what we're doing. He goes on, however. Missionaries, however, must knock loud and push hard at the door. And if there be the smallest opening must force themselves in. And once entered, put their lives in their hands and exert themselves to the utmost in dependence upon divine support if they ever hope to do much towards evangelizing the heathen of the world. He's even more direct. He wrote, If you want the kingdom of God speeded, Go out and speed it yourselves. Only obedience rationalizes prayer. Only missions redeem your intercessions from insincerity. Carrie was involved in the ministry, in missions, in evangelism before he ever went to the field. He wasn't produced from a vacuum. The Baptists of Northamptonshire, under the influence of Jonathan Edwards, began village preaching. And every Sunday they would preach in their own congregation and then they would walk miles to villages where there was no church. Andrew Fuller, was involved in village preaching. John Ryland was involved in village preaching. And they coordinated their efforts. If they needed help, they wrote to each other and said, would you cover this for me? I've got to be somewhere else. And they backed each other up. A pastor many years later who took the congregation at Moulton where Carrie had been pastor said that many years later he would go out into the surrounding villages villages and still find fruit from the years that Carrie had been involved in village preaching around the town of Moulton. If you go to Moulton, you can see the building that Carrie built. And the old shoe shop is still there. 
And on the outside of that shoe shop, there's a plaque. And on the plaque, it reads like this. In this cottage there lived from 1785 to 1789, William Carey, shoemaker, schoolmaster, preacher, scholar and missionary, pioneer. While beneath this roof, he conceived and developed the great missionary idea that has changed India and awakened worldwide movements. He ministered to the Baptist church in this village for over four years. Born at Pollersbury, 17th August, 1761, he died 9th June, 1834. And his body was buried at Serenport, India. He never returned to England. Just below that, it says, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Isn't that the essence of evangelical Calvinism? And the last line is, He being dead, yet speaketh. I wonder if we can still hear Carrie's voice. I think if we could, we might feel a tug on our arm and we might hear him say, is there nothing again going to be done? Dear Father, I pray that we could hear Carrie's voice. What's more, Lord, there is a greater voice and a greater word. And we've been called to make disciples of the nations. Father, help us to feel the weight of the command and let us be doers of the word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.